Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. So back in California, Dave, Pacific time zone treating you well? It is. As, as mentioned last week, it's my favorite time zone. It's, it's dry and sunny and the weather is perfect as, as usual in Pasadena. It just uh, doesn't really get much better than this. Um, heading out to Malibu this afternoon after the taping. Um, Not bad. <laughs> so it kind of sounds Californian, uh, but uh, I won't be able to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm going to have my smoothie and do my yoga, you know, go to Malibu, you know, for martini. But uh, all kidding aside, I will not be, one thing I won't be able to do in LA County is I will not be able to have one of those large house parties that I'm famous for, the, the raves, because if I dare do that now, my power and water might be shut off by Mayor Eric Garcetti. So, wow. Yeah, we've got like a million people around here without power and not because of house parties. Uh, there have been hurricane vestiges came through last week. A lot of people in northern New Jersey lost their power. It's been several days for some of them. So we, we lost power for about two minutes. We're right by, a, right by a hospital. So I don't know if that's the reason why, but we've never lost power for more than probably 15 minutes in our five years here. But some of our friends from church and, and others in the area are having a bit of a tough time with it. Don't don't have them move to LA because they won't even be able to have the fun house party that, that turns your power <laughs> off. Yeah. So Yeah, you know. they're they're tightening things around here too. You know, I don't know if you saw, but the New York City, they're now uh, basically watching people coming in for out of state plates and pulling people over randomly to make sure they're quarantining properly. So wow. I really feel sorry for um, a lot of the people here who've had to put on a mask and have really kind of uh, had uh, their life uh, turned upside down these last six months. I think it's wearing on quite a few people. So can't end soon enough. No, that's for sure. We've had a chance to look at a number of important political questions really connected with the election over the last number of weeks. And this week, we're going to focus on election integrity and legitimacy in light of some of the recent debates over voting by mail and whether either side will accept losing the presidential election. Uh, And we're also, just for fun, going to invent our own grading scale just in time for the start of the new school year and predict whether Ilhan Omar will survive for Democratic primary challenge. So we got a big show, but before we get into all that, we have an even bigger announcement. DIA Today is now on Instagram. You can follow us, Democracy in America Today, and we will be posting, obviously, new episodes and matters related to the show. Uh, Don't expect a lot of pictures of cats and uh, cuddly animals, but uh, we are going to try to push things out a little bit there. So if you're an Instagram person, go ahead and follow us. What's next, Matt? TikTok? Definitely not TikTok. We are not going there. I don't think we're going to probably do Pinterest anytime soon. So I don't know. This, this might be the end of the social media empire. I'm going to be very slow to get back on Twitter, especially this season <laughs> right? and Facebook as well. So, well, with that having been said, with all the excitement surrounding that, let's now turn to our headlines. And again, we're going to focus on election integrity and legitimacy and starting with integrity a lot of the debate and discussion surrounds the question of voting by mail. Now, obviously, given the situation with COVID-19, 
there's a lot of people that are thinking about voting by mail and making absentee balloting more accessible, or if it's already accessible in your state, actually taking advantage of that. There was some good news in a recent CDC study of the Wisconsin primary that was so controversial back in April, showed that there wasn't really a significant uptick in cases of coronavirus there. And so, you know, there's some circumstances there. Wisconsin was not a particularly active state at that point for the coronavirus. And obviously a primary election doesn't have the same turnout as a general election, but there was some indication that you could do elections with reasonable turnouts in this context and, and it wouldn't be a major spreader event. So that's, that's on one side. But having said that, there's still a lot of interest in expanded vote by mail. And one of the headlines that kind of captured where this debate is this week was from the AP on Wednesday. It says, Trump encourages mail voting in Florida, but sues in Nevada. And obviously the setup suggests maybe some political motives at the bottom of all that or some reasons why Trump favors one state over another. But when you dig a little deeper, what you find out is that there are actually a wide range of laws concerning absentee and by mail voting. And so we want to walk through a little bit of that just to give you a little bit of lay of the land here and then look at some of the developments in Florida and Nevada and some other states like New York, which would help us to think about how you do this wisely and well, how you provide for safety of individuals, but also the uh, integrity of the election. The normal setup in most states in normal times is if you want to vote by absentee ballot, you request that and you have to give a cause. You're going to be out of town, you have some disability or temporary or permanent illness. Uh, you've got some reason why you couldn't just go to the polls. And one thing that's changed is a lot of states, so here's a couple of examples, Alabama and New York, have both decided that you can basically apply for an absentee ballot saying you're sick in essence because you're concerned about COVID-19. So you don't have to actually be sick but to be concerned about that is an adequate reason to request an absentee ballot. And New York goes a step further in actually sending the application to everybody. Alabama, you've got to apply. In Alabama, you actually have to also submit a copy of a valid photo ID with your application. Uh, in New York, they send you the application, so you don't have to look for that online or print it out or anything. Uh, but you do still have to fill it out and submit it in, in proper time before you get your, your ballot actually sent to you. You have other states, so for example, Florida and Michigan, where it's already been a policy, you don't have to give a cause. You don't have to sort of say, well, I'm worried about COVID-19. You, you, you want a ballot, absentee ballot, you can just apply for it and you'll get it no questions asked. Um, there's rules about, again, the process whereby you have to do that, the timeline for doing that. But Florida, Michigan, two states that are like the battleground states this time around, uh, basically are allowing anybody to request no questions asked absentee balloting. And again, in Michigan, they're actually sending the application to everybody. Okay, so that's the absentee ballot side. And there's a two-stage process in all those states. You apply for an absentee ballot, and then they actually mail you the ballot right enough time for you to return it by election day. Now, what makes Nevada different, not unique, but different from those states, is that Nevada is going to send the actual ballot to everybody, to every active voter in the state. They will receive a ballot. 
Now, this isn't the first state to do this. California and Vermont, as well as D.C., have recently passed laws to do that this time around. There's five states that have done this in the past, that have a pattern of doing this in some cases for a number of years. So you'll have eight states plus D.C., at least at present, who are sending a ballot to every voter in the state. Now, there's controversy around that, but if you dig a little further into the Nevada law, you see a little more of some of the reasons why President Trump was concerned. So here's a summary of some of the other provisions from uh, Adam Laxalt over at Real Clear Politics. It provides that ballots received by election officials without a postmark for up to three days after election day be considered valid by default. And that's the particular part that uh, President Trump's campaign is, is suing concerning. It allows ballot harvesting on a broad scale, meaning that people that are unrelated or unconnected to the person who is voting can turn in their ballots. So someone can go around collecting ballots from say a nursing home who's a political campaign person and just collect all those ballots and, and bring those into a certain place, um, drop them off at a county election headquarters, for example. Uh, and for multiple ballots to be submitted in a single envelope with only a single signature required on the envelope and no signature requirement for the enclosed individual ballots, leaving it to the discretion of elected officials to decide whether the votes should count. It allows for an individual to sign a ballot on another's behalf, and it allows for drop boxes for collecting ballots with no signature requirement, which is an even more dangerous form of ballot harvesting, which conventionally at least requires a signature. So I think when you see the range of options here from, from Florida to Nevada or Alabama to Nevada, you begin to understand why President Trump would be encouraging absentee voting in one place and bringing a lawsuit somewhere else. What I found interesting about the Florida position, you mentioned this, is that they allow for that early voting to occur. I think what we have to ask ourselves in this situation is, what are we really after? What would be the optimal situation? We want, of course, everyone who wants to vote, who has the intention to vote, to be able to vote. Uh, we know that circumstances have made that more difficult in the year 2020. So if you're looking at it from that vantage point, you'd have to ask the question, how can you overcome the circumstances so you allow every individual who intends to vote to be able to vote? And I wonder uh, if some of these practices that we're employing in our businesses, in our schools, et cetera, uh, that allow more leeway, allow more flexibility, but still have uh, that essential integrity could be, could be the fix. So let me throw an idea out there, Matt, uh, and, and see what, what you make of it. If you had a state, for example, uh, knowing that it's difficult for voters to get to the polls that maybe open their polls a week or two weeks early. Would that solve the issue? So instead of having one election day, having you know 13 to 14 election days and doing that across the country uh, and uh, suggesting, of course, these are state laws that uh, deal with election laws, but suggesting to all of the states that they practice as much flexibility as possible uh, and, and, and still ensure that level of integrity that, that you find in having a person there uh, who has to have their name checked off, has to have their... Uh, identity verified, et cetera. What would you make of that as a, as a counter suggestion? Yeah, well, I mean, a number of states already offer that. As you mentioned, Florida is one of those. So they have provision that allows for a minimum of three days before the election to 10 days before the election that polls have to be open. They can do as much as two weeks, depending upon the county. And you can find other states that do the same thing. Early voting is a very common thing in some parts of the country. So yeah, so that's, that's one of the ways that you can kind of thin 
the crowd as well. And if we're thinking about social distancing, if you're worried about people gathering for long periods of time and the kinds of places where votes often take place, whether it's a school gym or a church or those kind of things, or if you spread out the days over which people are voting, that's kind of gets you more probably in the context of that Wisconsin vote, which again, as we saw, didn't have any appreciable impact on coronavirus cases. And so, you know, that kind of spreading out election day, like you're suggesting, might be a very plausible way to do that and and to not then require that we depend so heavily on voting by mail, which has some issues, as we've already suggested a little bit, but I want to develop that a little bit further um, as we proceed here. Two, two big issues uh, that we're going to talk about. One, you might just call undervoting. Um, so while we're talking about Nevada, let's start with a study of the June primary election there. So the Public Interest Legal Foundation reported earlier this week that Clark County, which is the county where Las Vegas is, sent ballots to every voter on the rolls for their June primary. That wasn't by law, that, that's the new law, but that was just something they did to try to deal with COVID-19 in that context. About one-sixth of the ballots they sent out, more than 220,000, were returned as undeliverable, 42% of which were for people that are active voter registration. And yet 42% of that 220,000, so you know, close to 100,000 ballots came back as undeliverable. And if you go back and just for comparison's sake, look at earlier general elections where they were only mailing out ballots to people that requested it, there were a combined less than 6,000 undeliverable ballots in the whole state of Nevada between 2012, 14, 16, 18. So 100,000 ballots of active voters approximately were returned as undeliverable, meaning some people probably didn't vote, right? They would have voted had they gotten their ballot, but their ballot never showed up. And also, of course, meaning that there's a lot of ballots hanging out in post offices. So that's, that's one point of concern is, you know, we're calling undervoting um, from the standpoint of people wanting to receive a ballot, but the ballot not arriving. But there's a second, maybe larger scale problem, which was described very well by Ari Fleischer. Uh, you may remember Fleischer from uh, the old Bush administration. He was a veteran of the 2000 Bush-Gore campaign. We all know how that ended with hanging Chad in Broward County in Florida and all the rest. Uh, he wrote a piece on Monday for Fox News, and the title kind of summarizes the argument. I'll read some of the argument, too. The title says, in 2020 election, if states can't prove they can handle voting by mail, don't try it now. And his concern is that this is the kind of thing that takes a while to figure out. So you got some states that have been doing it for a while. They're good at this. They know how to do it without fraud. They know how to deliver the ballots safely and securely and make sure people return them so that they're counted. And then you've got states that are new to this, and you've got possible disaster scenarios that, as we're going to see, are, are not just hypothetical based upon recent events, particularly here in New York. So here's what Fleischer says in part. In 2016, according to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, 33 million absentee ballots were cast, of which less than 1% were rejected. That still amounted to 318,728 votes thrown out nationally. In Florida, 21,973 were rejected. Pennsylvania was 17,574. Georgia, 13,677. 
and Ohio 10,189. And of course, he's chosen battleground states, right? He's chosen states where the vote was close, where those kind of numbers, although relatively small in the overall scheme of things, can make a difference. We all recall 2000 election was decided by less than 600 votes in Florida. Now he continues, with vote by mail surging this year, many more votes will be thrown out. With the disputed presidency on the line, what happens next is predictable. Every vote counts, the loser in that state will cry, hoping the rejected absentee ballots will put them over the top. The flip side is the rules. Either rules matter and ballots get rejected, typically because they arrive too late, signatures don't match or there is no signature, or the rules get made up on the fly, depending on which party is in power and whether disobeying the rules helps Trump or Biden. This exact dispute is taking place now in a contested Democratic congressional primary in New York City, where incumbent Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney's race against her progressive opponent, Suraj Patel, ended up too close to call on election night, June 23rd. The winner still hasn't been declared. New York, for the first time in 2020, sent absentee ballot applications to all voters, leading to a flood of mail balloting, overloading the system. Statewide in the 2016 primary, New York had 157,000 885 requests for absentee ballots. This year, the state had 1.7 million requests, 10 times as many requests. I don't care how much money a state has, no state that hasn't done it before can handle a surge in mail voting this late in the game. A massive 25% of absentee ballots or 12,000 votes were rejected for a variety of reasons, leading Patel to sue in court demanding every vote count. And even actually the day his piece was published, there was a ruling in that case, Manhattan Judge Annalisa Torres ruled that ballots received the day after election day had to be counted regardless of their postmark. And those received two days later had to be counted as long as they weren't postmarked after election day. And she cited equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment as well as the First Amendment. We also have more complete numbers. So it's 84,000 total ballots invalidated in New York City alone of about 403,000 received. So over 20% 20 of the ballots that were supposed to be cast were invalidated for one reason or another. Now, just one more brief comment from Fleischer. The fight in New York City pales to what will happen if the end of the Trump presidency is on the line. After Trump won decisively in 2016, many Democrats declared Trump wasn't their president and some partisans encouraged the Electoral College to overturn the results. Just imagine the length both candidates will go to to defeat their opponents if the 2020 election is close, contested, and dragging on. What do you think of Fleischer's concerns here, Dave? I think they're spot on. I mean, I think if you're talking about a presidential election in which some have predicted 150 million people are going to vote, and a great percentage of those votes are these absentee ballots, um, you, you could be talking just a, a number of ballots that uh, overwhelm the system as it is. And it kind of makes you wonder too, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a pipe dream, but given that we all know how much is riding on this election, and we know that these problems can and, and probably will occur, you wonder why there hasn't been more effort in Washington, D.C. Uh, to come together and kind of similar to maybe what the FE. FEC does, the Federal Election Commission does with regard to finances, establish a, a set of protocols as to you know what ballots will count, what will not. I'm sure that would take negotiation and that would take um, trying to rec make 
recommendations to the states. But I think if a lot of that legwork was done uh, in August and September, and uh, some sort of compromise was struck, you know, a month out from the election, uh, then at least you'd have a standard to go by when the election came. But right now, it looks like we're just kind of heading off this cliff. We're just waiting to see how bad it is when we get to early November. Yeah, it does feel like the kind of problem that you can see coming, right? The, the train is bearing down on you and you could get off the tracks. And for some reason, we're just, we're just not doing that. And, and you're right. I mean, there's, there's obviously partisan interests that are going to weigh in on all this. But you remember what happened in 2000? Once, once we knew how close it was and once we knew what the counties were where it looked like Gore would get more votes versus Bush would get more votes, then all of a sudden, you know, you had these very carefully crafted applications for a recount only in the big Democratic counties. And we're going to, you know, the, 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 the votes where they didn't punch all the way through the ballot or where the little piece of Chad was hanging there. You know, you remember all the details of that. And it was just obvious that this, the arguments were crafted for victory, uh, not for justice. And, and so there's so much temptation after the fact to do that. I think what you're saying is spot on. If you could have some standard guidelines going into this, now, you know, there's, there's no way to enforce it at a federal level. This isn't a federal matter, but, but you can still have the major parties agree, like this is how we're going to understand, we're going to deal with absentee ballots. And we're going to, you know, these are the kind of things we will contest in courts. These are the kind of things we won't contest in courts. You know, you could really take a lot of the air out of this balloon if you could have some people in advance kind of work through some of the very foreseeable scenarios that are already happening in these primary elections where the stakes are so much lower. Yeah, and the stakes are about a million times more uh, in that case, which allows for a million more times ways to, to abuse the system or uh, perhaps um, uh, to encourage fraud. Right, right, which is the next item for us to talk about. So, there's, you know, we're talking about undercounting as, as simply a factor whenever you deal with absentee ballots. There will be misaddressed ballots. There will be people that forget to sign their ballot or the postmark or whatever. You know, leaving aside questions people that are trying to game the system, people honestly trying to vote in a, with integrity, nevertheless, may not have their vote counted. And so that, that's a problem that we have to recognize is inherent in mass absentee balloting systems, especially where states have less experience rather than more. But there's also concerns about fraud. Now, you read any news article discussing President Trump's worries about fraud, and there will almost certainly be a note about how fraud is extremely rare, or Trump didn't present any evidence within about one paragraph or two. This is settled social science. There is no such thing as election fraud. And they often will talk about, if, if you're talking about mail-in balloting, the experience of these five states that have been doing it for a while, they have systems in place to present, uh, prevent fraudulent ballots from being printed, etc. But but now, again, we're talking about an environment where we have inexperienced states. And we've already seen that some people won't get their ballot, and some of those ballots will be invalidated. Take this case in New York. It's an interesting test case to kind of give you a sense as to where things might go. If you knew in Nevada that ballots were going to be accepted up to three days late if they had no postmark or an ambiguous postmark, and you knew there would be tens of thousands of ballots returned to post offices unmarked because the addresses were incorrect. Would that not create a temptation, at least to try to influence a close election? Right? We've, we have to account for human nature here in all this. We can say, well, there's no, there's no fraud. But 
are you creating a context in which fraud is possible by setting the rules in advance so that, look, it's very easy to move mail around in the state in less than three days. If you know that you need X thousand more votes to push somebody over the top, could there not be a temptation to find those votes a day or two after the election and get them on site in time to be counted, given the rules in Nevada? Now, that's hypothetical. But despite the claims that cases of fraud are extremely rare, don't forget that a congressional election in 2018 was invalidated because of a vote harvesting scheme that concerned absentee ballots that benefited the Republican candidate in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. Now, it's interesting to go back to the stories written at the time when the charges were being filed, because now, again, the narrative is there is no such thing as election fraud. But now here's AP article describing the first set of charges brought against this North Carolina operative in February 2019. The article begins, the political operative at the center of an election fraud scandal that has engulfed the North Carolina congressional race was arrested Wednesday, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so they go on, they give some of the details. Uh, the first set of charges concerned the 2018 Republican congressional primary and the 2016 general election. But then they worked at it further, they looked more closely, and they found more evidence, which ended up again invalidating the general election result in the fall of 2018. And so here's the New York Times article from the end of July 2019, which is describing this new set of charges brought against the same gentleman. The headline is, election fraud in North Carolina leads to new charges for Republican operative. And it goes on to describe the new charges. And again, the way that the absentee ballot collection, which was not legal, it's not legal for somebody who's not related or, you know, caregiver of an individual in North Carolina to turn in their absentee ballot. That's what Nevada just made legal. Other states, that's legal. This, this gathering up of ballots, it's legal in California, for example. So you go back a year and apparently election fraud is real. Uh, and of course, you might be a little bit cynical on this. Well, it's real if Republicans are the ones that are guilty, maybe. <laughs> Well, I find it interesting. I just mentioned the Federal Election Commission. And if you go to uh, their website, most of what they do has to do with money and politics, right? And you'd never hear uh, from someone who was center left or of a progressive political persuasion that uh, human nature does not pose a problem when it comes to money in politics. So why is it that it poses a problem when it comes to money in politics and you can kind of have some sort of um, injustice done by the using of money to get what you want, uh, but it doesn't apply in the case of, of votes? It's, it just seems to be an inconsistent application. You believe human nature uh, guilty of a wrong in one case, but not in the other. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And by the way, the Heritage Foundation has compiled a list of cases, 1,290 and counting, proven instances of voter fraud, some of which involve individuals who voted twice, which obviously wouldn't have a huge impact on a given election, but some of which are more systematic, including the one we're just describing in North Carolina in 2018. And if you want a, a good summary of that, you're not up for sifting through the whole list. Uh, D-Roy Murdoch published a piece that highlights maybe a, a dozen of the most um, substantial and significant cases in a recent Fox News column. And as always, we'll have all the links to the studies we're citing, articles we're citing in the show notes. So if you want to grab those, certainly encourage you to do that. 
So the point of all this is there's, there's no need to suggest that voter fraud occurs on some enormous scale. We're not talking about millions of illegal ballots or Russians interfering or the Chinese or whatever. We don't, we don't have to go in any of those directions to make the point that there's, an, there's a danger that's more inherent in certain sets of laws than in others. And that there are ways of encouraging an honest count, whether it's through absentee balloting primarily or by mail balloting primarily or exclusively, or a mix of people going to the polls and absentee ballots in cases where it's necessary. There's ways of doing this that encourage confidence. Any further thoughts on how we can craft a system to make this better, hopefully before November, and if not after? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen before November, but I, I go back to just that, that basic question that you ask, what are you after? Uh, you want every vote, every intentional vote to be counted. Uh, you want to make it as easy as possible for someone with their intention uh, to participate in the political system. And I, I think that you do have to acknowledge the, the circumstances that we're in. And I think that you could create a more flexible voting system that still maintained its integrity. But that will take the desire of, of I'd say, a Trump campaign and a Biden campaign uh, to want that to happen. And I don't see that happening on either either side. I think uh, both campaigns are most interested in, in winning right now, um, even if there's going to be a question mark as to whether or not the victory was a true victory uh, thereafter. Well, the second part of this discussion, much more briefly, election legitimacy. And obviously, there's a close connection between election integrity and legitimacy. We know going into this that there's partisans on both sides who are laying the foundation for questioning the legitimacy of their candidate's defeat. If you have election integrity questions that go along with that, that, that raise legitimate concerns, now you've got an even deeper problem. President Trump's tweets about mail-in voting and the concerns about fraud, they may be trying to advance some public policy agenda and you know, move the law in the right direction. But but there's also a part of it that seems well-designed to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election if the election goes against the president in the end. His most controversial tweet on this was uh, a week ago, uh, last Friday, July 30th. Uh, you may recall, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It'll be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote three question marks on that last part. Now, that question was definitely answered in the negative by the leaders of Congress of both parties, but it became part of this broader conversation on whether the candidates and the partisans on both sides will accept defeat in this presidential election. I'm sure you remember, Dave, back in 2016, the media was constantly raising the question of whether Donald Trump would accept defeat, trying to get him on the record, saying, yes, he will accept defeat if Hillary Clinton wins. And he never actually said that he would. He, didn't, he never conceded that point. Um, they didn't really ask that question very often of Hillary, but they did ask it of Donald Trump. And again, in 2020 now, it's the same kind of thing. So he's being asked, he has been asked, and he hasn't committed himself to accepting the results in advance. And so Nancy Pelosi uh, suggested that he might have to be fumigated out of the White House. And uh, the Biden campaign suggested that the government might have to escort him as a trespasser. Very interesting, there's this group out there called the Transition Integrity Project, made up of a lot of people that were concerned that, that Trump might not leave or, or that the transition, if he loses, will be, will be rough. And they got together a few weeks ago 
and kind of wargamed this, various scenarios. And interestingly enough, it was the scenario where Biden loses in a similar way to 2016 that posed the most difficulty. This is the New York Times summarizing the, the scenario here. A group of former top government officials called the Transition Integrity Project actually gamed four possible scenarios, including one that doesn't look that different from 2016. A big popular win for Mr. Biden and a narrow electoral defeat, presumably reached after weeks of counting the votes in Pennsylvania. For their war game, they cast John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, in the role of Mr. Biden. They expected him, when the votes came in, to concede, just as Mrs. Clinton had. But Mr. Podesta, playing Mr. Biden, shocked the organizers by saying he felt his party wouldn't let him concede. Alleging voter suppression, he persuaded the governors of Wisconsin and Michigan to send pro-Biden electors to Electoral College. In that scenario, California, Oregon, and Washington then threatened to secede from the United States if Mr. Trump took office as planned. The House named Mr. Biden president, the Senate and White House stuck with Mr. Trump. At that point in the scenario, the nation stopped looking to the media for cues and waited to see what the military would do. And there's another account of this that, that also mentions that there was some negotiation suggesting that California, Washington, and Oregon would accept the results and allow President Trump to remain in office if... The Electoral College were eliminated, D.C. and Puerto Rico were made states, and California became five states and therefore 10 senators. So wild scenario, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully a wild scenario. What you might call the 1876 scenario with a little bit of 1860 thrown in there, right? We got 1876, briefly, Democrat Samuel Tilden wins the popular vote by about 3% over Republican Rutherford B. Hayes. He's one electoral college vote short. There's 20 disputed electoral college votes. They can't decide. They finally appoint a commission. The commission votes eight to seven on each one of those 20 electoral college votes to give it to Hayes. So the Republican wins ultimately by one electoral college vote. But the deal was that would mean the withdrawal of the final federal troops in the South had been there as part of Reconstruction since the end of the Civil War. And so that happens. Jim Crow follows and off we go, right? With lots of, lots of trouble that, that follows in the wake. But you throw in a little 1860, the threat of secession. How do we avoid this, Dave? Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that back in 2016, there was doubt right before the election, whether or not uh, then thereafter President Trump would accept the election. So I went and looked at articles written around that time. And uh, one author uh, looked back to the 1960 election that could have been much more disputed, uh, but uh, wasn't. Um, and that was the election between uh, Nixon and, and Kennedy, of course, Illinois and Texas uh, being two states had the Electoral College votes gone Nixon's way, he would have won the election. Uh, and there were charges made uh, that uh, Mayor Daley in Chicago uh, and LBJ in Texas had had rigged the election there, and that's why Nixon lost. But I think how do we get out of this um, scenario where we were having to negotiate a, a settlement? I think that Nixon in this case, even though behind the scenes he he wanted votes to be recounted, uh, gives us a good example of, of how we might do this. Uh, so on January sixth of, of 1961, he was uh, then of course. Uh, Eisenhower's vice president, and he had to preside over the counting of the Electoral College vote. And, and he said at that, that meeting, he said, in our campaigns, no matter how hard they may be, no matter how close the election may turn out to be, those who lose accept the verdict and support those who win. And, and that makes me think that at the end of the day, 
what do we care more about? Do we care more about a presidential victory in year X, or do we care about the stability of our constitutional system lasting 80, 100, 200 years further down the road? And if we want an immediate win at the cost of the stability of our constitutional system, then we're certainly going off the rails as, as a country. Well, I think that, that, that nicely brings us to our required reading uh, with another example uh, of, of this type of uh, how, do you, uh, how do you think of elections and uh, how do you respond to uh, victory uh, with uh, humility? And uh, my, my one required reading for the week uh, is a very short response uh, to a serenade by Abraham Lincoln uh, written on November 10th of, of 1864. It's short enough that I think I can read through it and you can get a sense as to uh, the tone of, of Lincoln with regard to elections. Of course, we're in the middle of a civil war uh, and, and Lincoln wanted the election to go on. So here's what he writes. He says, it, it has long been a grave question whether any government not too strong for the liberties of its people can be strong enough to maintain its own existence in great emergencies. On this point, the present rebellion brought our republic to a severe test, and a presidential election occurring in regular course during the rebellion added not a little to the strain. If the loyal people united were put to the utmost of their strength by the rebellion, must they not fail when divided and partially paralyzed by a political war among themselves? But the election was a necessity. So here, note Lincoln's first point. No matter what the circumstances that the country is in, elections are necessity. They are of a necessity that in our democratic Republican system, if we don't have an election, we really don't have that system anymore. We don't have any, anything really left of, of the regime itself. Yeah, well, that is the fundamental element of the system that, that makes it a Republican government, right? That it's a representative system. And so we have representatives who are chosen by the consent of the governed. And so, although obviously, I mean, President Trump you know, floats the idea of postponing the election because of COVID-19, well, all the more reason to think about postponing an election in the middle of a civil war. And yet for Lincoln, that was just unthinkable because the whole point of the war was to protect the regime. He says exactly that as he goes on. He says, well, we cannot have free government without elections. And if the rebellion could force us to forgo or postpone a national election, it might fairly claim to have already conquered and ruined us. You could take that same principle and apply it to COVID. If, if COVID brought on a situation whereby we didn't have an election, not only would it have wreaked havoc and death among hundreds of thousands of Americans, but it would have done great damage to our constitutional system. So we cannot allow that to be the case. And this kind of goes back to the headlines that we had before. We have to find a way to maintain the integrity of the election. We have to have it and, and try our best, even in difficult circumstances, to make sure it has integrity. So Lincoln says, the strife of the election is but human nature practically applied to the facts of the case. What has occurred in this case must ever recur in similar cases. Human nature will not change. In any future great national trial, this is prophetic, compared with men of this, we shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and good. Let us therefore study the incidents of this as philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. So here, Lincoln, taking a step back, what is human nature? Um, what, what can we learn in this situation and how can we apply it to our case? Matt? This is really what makes Lincoln so remarkable to be able to have, this is a 
spontaneous speech, <laughs> you know, in response to a serenade. And, and yet Lincoln gives a lesson in human nature and teaches us to study just this incident, right? He, he's speaking to us. Let us therefore study the incidents of this as philosophy to learn wisdom from. Right? Learn the experience. Learn from the experience. That's true for the people there, but that's true for us looking back on it as we try to apply the lessons of it in our own day. Yeah, and there's a little bit of um, Jefferson in 1800 in this response, right? Jefferson, of course, um, uh, in that uh, greatly contested election of, of 1800 against um, John Adams, these, these two political parties that are now at each other's throats. Um, and yet in his first inaugural, Jefferson really wants to get across that what was so remarkable about this election is that within our system, we can have transition from one party to the next. And, and Lincoln is saying, this is exactly the, the, the thing that we ought to be celebrating right now. Yes, I'm happy that we won, but he goes on to say, but the election along with its incidental and undesirable strife has done good too. It has demonstrated that a people's government can sustain a national election in the midst of a great civil war. This is a wonderful thing to celebrate that even in the middle of a civil war, we can have an election that has uh, integrity. Until now, it has not been known to the world that this was a possibility. It shows also how sound and how strong we still are. We, we all Americans are, we all who participated in this election, not we Republicans, but we Americans. It shows that even among candidates of the same party, he who is most devoted to the union and most opposed to treason can receive most of the people's votes, okay? So my, my side won. It shows also to the extent yet known that we have more men now than we had when the war began. Gold is good in its place, but living, brave, patriotic men are better than gold. One, I want to mention one last thing uh, in his speech that is uh, remarkable uh, and very Lincolnian. Uh, it adds nothing to my satisfaction that any other man may be disappointed or pained by the result, right? That, that aspect within us all where we want to win, but then we want to look at the face of our opponent defeated thereafter and say, told you so. And, and Lincoln um, uh, will, not, will have none of that or wants none of that. And that's a, another great example that, that I wish that we could uh, follow and, uh, and employ today. Boy, you're, you're right. That's, that's really... It takes a kind of discipline. This is the, the complexity of Lincoln because you have an appreciation of the selfishness of human nature, the, the folly of human nature. He constantly understands that and constantly judges uh, matters from that foundation. Well, we better take that into account. And yet he always calls us to something better than that, a kind of magnanimity here, which is almost a, a superhuman magnanimity you know, as, as bad as things are in 2020, may they never be like they were in 1864. Yeah, and may the, that, that spirit uh, be a, a glue just like the actual performance of the election ought to be a glue that, that holds us together uh, as, as a nation. So uh, definitely uh, some aspirational um, reading uh, for uh, this election. Well, we're going to open the grade book now. And uh, last time we graded the four major time zones. And as we were Introducing the topic, I asked if there could be anything more frivolous. And a faithful listener suggested, hey, I got an idea. How about you talk about which animal is the most overrated? Which apparently is a really big topic among zoologists. He sent a link <laughs> that described some of the ongoing debates among those in the animal world. So we're going to kind of use that as our inspiration 
And with the beginning of the school year, my kids are going back to homeschool on Monday as we start up again. Intentional homeschool, not the default homeschool <laughs> that many are looking at this year, but we, we actually do that on purpose and we start early so we can finish early with the academic year. But we're going back and then you guys are starting at Providence, I think the week after. So we need a good grade scale. And you know, A, B, C, D, F, great, we're all used to that. But we told the story back in our second episode about the French professor we had in graduate school who graded our midterms on the basis of the ferocity of animals. And so the more ferocious the animal, the better your score in the midterm. So obviously if you were, you know, say an Arctic wolf, that was better than being a prairie dog or something like that. So we're not going to follow exactly that scale, but we're going to do kind of the all round merits of animals and try to assign the right animal to the right letter grade working our way down from A to F. All right. You ready for this, Dave? I think I've got a, an idea. Yes. Okay. All right. So give us an A equivalent animal. So I first have to establish my standard. And the way that I'm going to do that is what I'll call the anthropocentric joy model of judging <laughs> okay. animals. All right. The, the more joy the animal brings to human beings, yeah. or to many human beings, the better. Okay. So when I thought through all of the animal kingdom, which animal brought the most joy maybe to me, I'd have to say the cow because the cow <laughs> has brought me prime rib. It's brought me a lot of brisket. It's brought me milk and cheese. Pretty hard to beat a cow when it comes to how delicious a cow is. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that's, I mean, you got pig, right? You may have to consider bacon. Um, but yeah, all round. Okay, I see that. I can see that. I, I don't know about giving somebody that grade, you know, you write cow at the top of a, an essay, are they going to feel flattered by that? But, but I like the idea. I like the way you're thinking on that. Um, my animal is the horse. And uh, I'm thinking the most powerful, noble animal. I remember when I was in high school, uh, my dad and I once went to a horse race. And, you know, you watch most of the races from up in the grandstand. But one time we went down right by the track. And this is, you know, this is central Pennsylvania. It's whatever, a second or third tier probably racetrack. But when those horses went by, there was something impressive about that. Wow, there's, there's a noble animal. And you think about, obviously, the role of horses in history. So, so that's why I'm, I'm choosing the horse as the A equivalent animal. I like it. Yeah, I think, I think they're brilliant creatures. One thing I've um, missed this summer is not being able to go to Saratoga and just see how beautiful they are. So you've got a, yeah. a point. Nobility, I like it. I like okay. it. Okay. All right. All right. So let's go down to bees. Who's, what's, a, what's a bee animal on your scale, Dave? Well, I mean, they're animals that bring you joy because you can eat them and animals that bring you joy just because they're excellent. They're loyal. And I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go with a dog. I'm um, a shout out uh, uh, to my dog, Tenny. I'm going to go with a dog for a B. She's not quite an A all the time, but, <laughs> but she, she's a solid, solid B plus animal. So a uh, okay. man's best friend, dog for a B. Yeah. I thought you were going to say chicken. I mean, eggs, you know, there's some good options there. A lot of, a lot of good food, but all right, that's, that's good. Well, actually I, I'm going to say dog too, you know, loyal, like you said, not, not noble in quite the same way as the horse, but there's a lot of good things about dogs. My parents have had dogs. Uh, really the whole married lives, but, you know, growing up in their household, we had several dogs and we, we decided as a family at this stage, we're, we're focusing on, on kids rather than dogs, but our kids would love to have a dog. Um, we're not sure we could add that to the mix successfully, but, but I certainly admire them. So I think 
solid B. And, you know, you've got, you got some range there where you can do kind of B plus dogs and there's B minus dogs. And you can kind of play with that if you want to. All right, we're down to C, adequate, all right? Not, not great, but adequate. What, what animal comes to mind? I'm going to go with a cat. And here's why. I, I would actually want to grade a cat lower. I'm sorry, all the cat <laughs> lovers out there. Now you're talking but, my way. Yeah, kittens are A's, but then yeah. they become cats. So you've got to balance the, the, those two things. They go from being an A to a D minus. Okay. Uh, somewhat unacceptable in my book. So uh, cat is my choice for a C. I'm sorry, to, like I said, to all the cat lovers. Yeah, six, six months of joy and then there's the rest. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to say a tortoise. And, you know, you think about, like, what does a C represent? Well, if we're optimistic, you kind of go ESOP there, right? Slow and st- you can do this. You can get over the line. It seems like there's some kind of motivational aspects to that. So, you know, you're not there, but I could see you being successful if you can just keep at it. So I'm kind of going with the kind of academic guru choice here. Uh, of the tortoise, which by the way, they live forever. I mean, they're like 160 years old or something like that. So, you know, you have that, right? They, they got a long life. They move slowly, but they get the job done. What job that is, I don't know, but they, 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 <laughs> they, get, they, get, they get the job uh, done. That's fair. That's fair. We go to the, the zoo in, in Tyler, Texas from time to time. There's some really old tortoises and, you know, you, you kind of you spend about two minutes looking at them and they've moved about three inches and you think, okay, that's interesting. We'll see you next year. You know, <laughs> you've made it across the pen right. in, the, in the meantime. All right. We're down to D barely passing, barely passing. What animal is a D Dave? This is going to upset my neighbors back in Canyon Lake, Texas at Rocky Creek. Uh, I'm going to go with deer here. Uh, Bambi's a great movie, but <laughs> There's the reality of deer, what yeah. they do, yeah. what they do to your yard, what they do to your garden, what they leave on your yard. Uh, not a deer fan. I'm just, I, you know, not, not a fan of deer. I think that a lot of what they do is unacceptable. Uh, but uh, once I'll, I'm going to upset another whole segment of, of our population, <laughs> you know, with, with the Bambi comment. So. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, around where we are, we, we, we're, we're kind of in town, so we don't, We've seen, I think, a deer once or twice, but nearby, there are lots and lots of deer that are doing just the kinds of things you described. And so I'm kind of making a similar choice. My choice is a squirrel who's kind of our equivalent of a deer. So, you know, we have squirrels that are constantly eating the, the, the things we put in the bird feeder for the birds, and we kind of have to buy special bird feeders to keep them from, they still kind of figure out ways around it. They eat my wife's plants, which is very annoying for her. And we've actually had two squirrels fall down our chimney into our fireplace. And then, and then what do you do, right? <laughs> you can't just kind of let the squirrel run through the house. So there's a guy, of course, there's always a guy. You call the guy and he's got this trap and he figures out a way to get, but it's, it's crazy to have that happen twice. So squirrels are, are barely passing. No, you just want to, you, you want to do the same thing with, with deer and squirrels. Why do people feed them? Why? Just stop. Yeah, Don't right. feed them. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, all right. Or, anyway. Or, all right. My F. Yes. So I've gone this joy scale. So I, I've yet to be stung by one of these things, but it seemed like every person I spoke to in Texas has. So my F would be a scorpion. And I had to make sure a scorpion was an animal, and they are. So, okay. um, 
but uh, you're not but, science majors here. No, no, I, I, I had to check on that. But is that scorp- a plant? Well, no, uh, I guess not. <laughs> okay. I, I knew it was a plant or a mineral, but I just wanted to make sure it was an animal. <laughs> they are Scorpion alive. is my F. Hopefully, I never uh, have to um, realize what the sting of that thing is um, to, to realize the grade uh, myself. So. Okay. All right. Yeah, that sounds like a good Texas choice. Not a lot of scorpions around here. I, I'm going with kind of the direct grade message here. Skunk. Your work stinks. That's just about as clear as a message as could be conveyed. You earn a skunk, then it's time to improve or, or to move along. So that's, I, I, I'm just, I think the direct route is, is probably the best route in a situation like that. So you're a skunk, you stink, pick it up or else, you know, move along. Reminds me of an old professor once that told us a story that you couldn't say anymore, uh, and probably for good reason. He said to a student that he gave a C minus to, and the student complained, well, why'd, I, why'd you give me a C minus? And, and the professor said, because you have a C minus mind. And that <laughs> you, could, you could not get away with that anymore. You couldn't say you've got a skunk of a mind. It just no, stinks. No, no. <laughs> not the mind, the paper. No. The okay. paper was bad. I'm not, okay. it's not about you. I'm not oh. judging your capacities. I'm just That's saying right. this, this work is no good. It stinks. Got it. You got to do better. Understood. All right. That leaves us only with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Uh, last week we were looking at the beginnings of the NHL playoffs and the play in series. And the question was how many sweeps there would be. And uh, true to form, Neither of us got this right. Uh, Dave, you said there'd be no sweeps, which was a reasonable guess given the way that the NHL playoffs works. I said two, and I named teams that are probably going to lose their series. Um, turned out there was one. So it's a tie, I guess, kind of a loser's tie. But the one, of course, we should have seen coming. It was the Carolina Hurricanes. And you know what else? What other team would, would have a hot week? while the whole eastern sea coast and sea and south is being hammered by tropical storm hurricane uh, isais so carolina hurricanes were the one sweep uh, they're on to the final 16 we'll see who joins them over the next few days i think there were six game fours today so this is this is that day of days if you're a hockey fan where you're just not moving off the couch as one series after another may end uh, today or go on to a decisive fifth game. That's last week. So nobody wins. Um, we continue our bad streak of sports predictions, not related to the Premier League. But- we did have a couple of obnoxious um, Flyer fans, though, comment on your um, Bruins prediction. Yeah, yes. that's, that's true. We did, we did hear a little bit about that. So, yeah. um, and and the, nothing to say. I mean, the Bruins have lost their top seed. Somehow this, this scheme, best team a whole season – they lost two games, <laughs> and now they're no, maybe fighting for the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs. Who knows? You know, you can win the NHL playoffs from any seed, but, yeah, it was a bad time for a, a two-game losing streak. The Flyers are looking good. We're going to go back to politics, though, um, where, our, frankly, our record isn't that much better, but we'll, we'll try politics here. There were some big primaries on Tuesday. There's some more primaries coming up this Tuesday. The one we already mentioned we're going to focus on is uh, perhaps the most interesting primary. Ilhan Omar is facing Anton Melton Moe. And there's some indication that he's been able to get some traction in this race, despite her advantages of high profile and incumbency. What do you think, Dave? Is there, is there any hope that 
Ilhan Omar will be out of office come January? I don't think so. Even though, like, like you mentioned, Melton Moe, I think, uh, raised something like $1.5 million over the last quarter, which I think more than uh, 10 times the amount uh, of, of uh, opponent. And I think that I think she has enough support uh, to, to win this one. I don't know if she'll you know, win by 20 points, but I, I definitely think um, money in and of itself does not buy uh, an election. And I think that she'll be victorious, let's say by um, a 10-point margin, uh, maybe a little closer than, than she'd like, but, but I think she'll still win. All right, so you're saying 10-point spread. I'm going to say 18-point uh, spread in her favor. I don't think that he's going to be able to do enough to beat her, but we may not have heard the last of Anton Melton Moe. Uh, seems to have run a good campaign and may be able to parlay that into some other political opportunities down the road. Well, thanks again, as always, for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And now don't forget to follow us as well on our new Instagram account, Democracy in America Today. Hope you have a great week and we look forward to talking to you next time.